Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What? Amen. Thank you. What? So, yeah. So, nobody has ever accused us of being professional about anything. And today is a great example of that. I have no idea why this is so tight and why this is so... I should just dismiss now and... Because I'm afraid it's only going to get worse from here. I got it. I got it. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> if you didn't hear all that, Matt was starting to run up here because Janelle is over there saying, go help him. He didn't even know what to help me with. He's just obedient little Matt running over here. Going to stare at me, hover for a little while. That's okay. That's what I would do. All right. All right. We can do this. We can get through this day. I just know we can. <laughs> has ever has anyone ever taken something that belonged to you and used it as though it was your as though it was their own and not yours? And how did that make you feel? I want you to think about that just for a minute. How did you feel in that moment? Have you ever been in charge of something? Maybe at work or someplace like that, and somebody else starts stepping on your authority and making decisions that you didn't authorize or didn't want, how did you feel? Like, what, is that, what does that incur I- inside you? What do you feel like? Anger, frustration. You feel betrayed, right? That's a great, that's a great observation. That's that sense of like, wait, this was mine, and you just took it, and that's not fair. We're going to be considering things like that today, only we're going to be viewing it from God's perspective. What happens when humans try to usurp God's authority when we try to take his place as the ones who call the shots when it comes to the issues of his kingdom. We're continuing our study in Luke today. If you've got a Bible with you, if you'll head over to Luke chapter 20, please. We've entered the final week of what we call Jesus's earthly ministry, which is his ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. We always, you'll hear that term sometimes, Christ's earthly ministry, that's what it's referring to. He's entered Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, last week we read about how he made a big disturbance at the temple, temporarily shutting down the sacrificial system. Uh, and then uh, he's been doing and saying things all along that make it very clear that not only is the temple system falling short of what God wanted for it, but, but that temple system is about to, to be gone. Um, Jesus had this other confrontation we looked at last week with the religious leadership. And the issue of authority came up in that conversation. The leadership was wanting to know who Jesus thought gave him the right to go and do and say the things that he's been doing and saying. And today, the subject of authority is still in view. We're going to read a parable that was aimed at the religious establishment at that time, meant to reveal that they had overstepped their place when it came to God's kingdom, when it came to God's order of things. And all of it's going to come down to understanding exactly who is in charge of God's kingdom. And that's our topic in our text today. And we're going to see how it relates to us. How do we understand God's claim as sovereign king over his order, over his affairs here. So if you're there in Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 9. Uh, remember, Jesus has been in a conversation with the religious leadership. And when we get to verse 9, 
Luke makes a point at making sure we understand who's in view or who is being talked to here. He's always doing this. He's very careful to make sure that he identifies who the target audience is. So now it changes. It says, now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to a tenant farm, to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the great harvest, grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the other sent another servant. But they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. Oh, I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they'll respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son... They said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and we'll get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. All right. Once again, Jesus is drawing his story from real life situations or situations that would have certainly been apropos for the people that he was talking to. A person of means has multiple properties, which he leases out to tenant farmers. We in our vernacular would call them sharecroppers. The, the owner plants the vines and he does everything that's necessary to make a viable vineyard. And then the tenants then would provide the labor, giving a portion of the agreed upon uh, profits to the landowner. And the profits would be in the form of grapes or wine in the case of a vineyard. So the story tracks right along with common experiences of people of that day. In fact, you know, and we got to realize he's telling a story. And remember that parables are never about what the parable is on the surface, never about the story that's being told. It's about something else. So some have looked at this and, and tried to say this was a commentary on worker exploitation, et cetera, et cetera. That's not, we can't do that. I mean, certainly worker exploitation is an issue. We don't want that to be, you know, something that, that we're involved in as Christians. But at the same time, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, he was talking about things that were probably the experience of most of his listeners. If they were rural people, most of them were probably tenants on, on farmland. But the story takes this strange turn, uh, so much so that it's actually almost ludicrous uh, as, as it unfolds. The landowner sends representatives to receive his portion of the harvest, and the tenants violently reject the claim. And delegation after delegation is sent only to receive the same treatment. So the landowner thinks, I'll send my son. That'll, that'll be it. Uh, and it'll provide the right leverage to end this, you know, what has become literally a hostile takeover. And now everyone listening to this story, I would imagine, would be incredulous at this point as they're hearing this. I mean, in any time or any culture, the behavior that we're reading about here is terrible. This sort of behavior is, is, is pathological. And the landowner is portrayed as patient and hopeful to the point of absurdity in this. I mean, I think it's highly possible people were laughing when they heard that the guy said, oh, I, I know, I'll send my son, thinking that this, is, this has got to be like a comedy or, or whatever because this is so ludicrous. But it wasn't a comedy. In fact, it was actually a, a, a terrible tragedy. So the landowner sends his son, and of course they murder him, as the story goes, in hopes that their barricade on this property would last until the owner died. And if the owner died without an heir, then the property would go over to those who'd been working it. That's the way the law worked in that, and that's what their hopes were. So I imagine if people were laughing at this point, they would stop 
here mulling over how nefarious someone would have to be to do something like this, to do such a horrible thing. And so after a dramatic pause, in my mind, that's how I'm imagining it, I can imagine then Jesus asking, still there in verse 15, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked, I'll tell you, he'll come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling this story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Okay, so there's our story, and whew, did that ever take a dark turn, right? I mean, it's like, wow. Jesus, remember when you told stories about love and grace? Could we have one of those now, please? So throughout the history of the church, we have been prone to read this, this parable improperly. I don't mean in, in a wholesale level, but there have been times when we have looked at this parable and we've read it wrongly. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, it's done some real damage to people along the way. So we want to, right at the outset, correct any misunderstanding about this. For many years, this was interpreted as a history of salvation. So, uh, you know, how God first chose the Jewish people, but then because of their failures is the way it's interpreted. They, he cast them aside, and he brought up the Gentile church and began saving Gentiles. Here's the problem with that. A whole lot of anti-Semitism was validated within the church because of interpretations like that. And I think that that interpretation is missing the point. And the reason I believe it's a flawed interpretation is, for one thing, Jesus told us we would know things by their fruit, and this has had such grievous applications throughout history. Racism, and I'm just this is a time for me to be able to say this, Racism in any form to any degree is an enemy of God and an enemy of God's purposes in this world. So to understand this story, we have to, as we do with everything in Scripture, remember the context. What's the context in which this story emerges? Jesus has been speaking against and protesting what? What did he stage a protest against in the last message that we did, if you were here? The the temple the temple system and its leadership, not his own people. And that's why the leaders got upset at the end of this parable and not the common people listening to him. Here's how we should break this down as we're thinking about it. There's an Old Testament passage of scripture that I think would have been familiar to everybody as a backdrop to this story. Sort of, you know, like a hyperlink. You've heard me quote Tim Mackey about that before. Something which points to another part of the biblical narrative that helps us understand how to imply the present story. So there was this famous poem by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5, which describes God planting a vineyard. And it's similar to how Jesus tells this story here. And in the poem, even though everything has been done to make sure that the grapes are coming in well and that the vineyard's going to produce good fruit, it, it produces nothing but sour fruit. But the end of that poem reads like this. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard the cries of violence. So the vineyard represents God's kingdom, his active 
rule in this world which was supposed to be represented by the temple and the temple system. Remember, we talked about that last week. If you were here, the temple wasn't just a, like a building, like we have church buildings around that are a nice, pleasant building that we can meet in to remind ourselves of who we belong to and what this is all about. The temple was far more than that. The temple was symbolic of God's activity in this world. The temple was a representation of God's active presence in this earth. And, and, it, and it was meant to be conveying those kinds of concepts into the world, which it had not been doing. And, and so the parable isn't about salvation. We just got to make sure that we keep that clear. This was about leadership and representation. Leadership and representation. And notice that the people were God's pleasant garden, but, but those in charge were oppressive and violent. And that's where the hyperlink from Jesus' story is meant to take us. So the servants, as we're breaking this down, the servants that were sent and abused would be describing the prophets of the Old Testament all the way up to John the Baptist. They were rejected, rejected, they were beaten, they were killed. You can read Hebrews 11 to hear the long list of the things that they endured uh, as, they, as they confronted the establishment and the establishment responded to them. The tenants then were the leaders and the participants in a system that had lost its way from God's original intent. They were the ones trying to wrest control away from the true owner, trying to wrest control away from God and, and, and take the rule for themselves. And then the son, I mean, we can figure out who the son is. Who's the son in this story? It's Jesus, right? Yeah. And so this was kind of a... Well, not kind of. This was seriously in your face uh, from Jesus to the leadership. Uh, it, would have, it wouldn't have taken much for the religious leaders to figure out that they you know, were the tenants in this story. They're going along, listening, and all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I don't think I like this story. And you realize this is all you're talking about. Oh, we're the problem tenants in this. So this was Jesus condemning the religious system of the temple that it becomes something that God hadn't intended and was basically being steered by people who were seeking to take power over God's people, usurping God's authority, usurping God's place. And again, then it was forecasting the end of the temple system, which literally happened in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And that's in the, in the parable that Jesus told, verse 16, that's what that is picturing and forecasting. Now, as always, one of those things. Okay, so we figured it out, right? We cracked the code. We understand what this story is about. This is great. So, but again, it's always easy for us to sit here and look over Jesus' story at the religious leaders and go, yeah, you messed up, and, and, and then go about our merry way. But that's, that's the problematic situation, too, because, yes, that's what God's Word said about that. But what is God's Word saying like, that's what God said to this group, or that group of people that he was confronted with. But what is it saying to us right here, right now? You know, if we expand the principle out, then we see that it still has application to us. And I'll just warn you, it's challenging when we think about it. God's kingdom, the representation of his active rule at work in this world is the concern and the question at hand is about understanding just whose kingdom it is. As the church, we're charged with being the representation of God's kingdom. You understand that's our role, right? 
I mean, we're not, you know, it's nice to be able to gather and see everybody and that's all fun. And, you know, uh, the coffee's okay. And, and <laughs> it's good. It's very good coffee. I'm sorry. Who made the coffee today? Stan. You, you did great. And I loved it. But uh, it wasn't very good. But, uh, but, but it's more than just us getting together. It's more than just, you know, it's not just to, so we can sing songs or whatever. This has to do with us reflecting on earth what it's like in heaven. This is our calling. This is our time to gather together and put all of the differences we may have aside and reflect God's kingdom into this world. This is, this is who we are. This is, this, is, this is our role in life, to reveal God's rule and his authority. The danger posed in Jesus' story is still very real because it calls into question how we handle this responsibility. Obviously, it pertains first and foremost to leadership in the church. James 3.1 talks about, you know, don't be quick to be a leader or a teacher because they, they receive the greater judgment. Not necessarily that God's judging everything, but there's accountability that's there. And, and obviously, everybody's going to be paying attention. It, it impacts people. So certainly, there is a, a warning here for leadership, but there's also no hierarchy in the church. There's never an, an established hierarchy we are all a royal priesthood, according to First Peter. So, you know, you can't lay this on me, you guys. This is, this is all of us. We're in this together. And the first and most obvious point that this story is getting across is that as the church, we're going to rightly represent God's kingdom when we recognize that we're only stewards. This is similar to what we said in our text last week about authority. Now, Steward, steward is not a commonly used word in our culture right now. It feels sort of medieval and uh, even kind of religious. But there's not a lot of modern equivalents to try to get the point across in that. Technically, a steward is someone employed in a large household or estate to manage their property and affairs. So it's someone in charge of what someone else owns, and you're answerable to the one that owns it right? That's a steward. That's the basic idea. What's that? Oh, of course. Alfred from Batman. You know me. I know nothing about comic books, so I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, if, if you're new here, that's just an underlying joke. That's just too much. I'm sorry. It was an inside joke. I love comic books. Okay. Uh, I got to find my place here. So what had happened with Israel's leadership is that they forgot their place. They set up their own agenda that was independent from what God had originally called them to. Independent and seeking control over God's people to benefit themselves. So it wasn't about what what it was that God had insisted on or intended for the temple system of worship. It was about benefiting those who were controlling it at that moment. And listen, this, this can happen. It has happened throughout church history. It is a contemporary issue within the church. We don't have to look far. We've talked about this, I mean, on a regular basis. You turn on the TV, you look for a documentary, you're going to find something about when the church has lost its way by trying to usurp control. So, you know, we look at this as the church throughout history, even in contemporary situations. We, we come up with our own agenda. We come up with priorities that are different from the ones that were revealed in God's word. We come up with our own ideas about how to grow grapes and how the distribution of the proceeds should go. Just like Israel's leaders, we start assuming that our views are automatically God's views. 
substituting our authority over God's authority. And we have to be careful about this. All of us have to guard against this, to guard against taking authority over things that we have no business taking authority over, like someone else's spiritual life, trying to, to control that for someone else, usurping God's place and the work of the Holy Spirit, demanding that legitimate godliness is going to look just like us. And if it doesn't look like us, well, forget that. And, you know, if you're looking at me like, what are you talking about, Rob? Man, you got to get out more because this is, this is a reality. This was, this is, you know, this is the struggle that many of us have faced in even trying to find a church home, a place that we can plug in and not be afraid most of the time because there are these unspoken demands for conformity that are present. And they can happen here as well. I'm not saying that we're somehow immune to that. If we look at the American evangelical church over the last 50 years, and I'm just someone who can't help but keep looking into the history of things, trying to figure out how we got here from there, there's just been this increasing rejection of church and Christianity within our present-day culture. And, and I'm someone who listens to a lot of people speak, and I'm reading a lot of newsletters and, and you know, statements from religious outlets. And what I hear is a rally cry from church leaders in response to this rejection of Christianity is this, this denouncing of the secularization of our culture. Oh, our culture's just gotten so secularized and they blame Hollywood and they blame the media and they blame the liberals, but we fail to look in the mirror. We've embroiled ourselves in a culture war that has backfired in our face because we were never called to that. And I know you've probably heard me say it before and you're like, Rob, why are you worked up over this? You say this all the time. I know, I know, and I'm going to keep saying it. And if it empties this place out, I'm going to keep saying it. And I'll say it to the ceilings and the walls if I have to. But we were never called to a culture war. We were never called to so many of the things that we're involved in as the evangelical church. That was an agenda from people who feared the loss of power and influence in this world. We have always been called to, always been called to a ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5, read it. Get a tattoo with it on it. Do something to remember we are called to a ministry of reconciling people to God and teaching people what God is like, who God is, and seeing to it that people change at God's instigation, not by our legislation. Now, there's something else in this story, and that's Jesus' quotation of Psalm 118. He said in verse 17, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. A stand or a collapse is what he's getting at. A stand or a collapse determined in relation to that stone. Everything has to be built off of the cornerstone. And this further clarifies our understanding of God's kingdom and how we represent it. We rightly represent God's kingdom when our primary focus is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is pointing to himself, the, the rejected Messiah, as the cornerstone. 
That is, he is the stone on which everything else is determined, what everything else is built on. The cornerstone image reminds us that if it's not centered on Jesus, on his values, on what it is that he represented into this world, it's not part of what God is doing through the church. If it doesn't look like Jesus, who is the fullest revelation that we have of God, then it then it's not what God is building in the church. Jesus is central. He must be central to all that we do, all that we are as the church. Jesus must be the core of our identity as this community called the church. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wasn't just, you know, (laughs) saying things just to fill up air or or fill up time or, or, you know, I I got so many words, I got to get into this letter, I can throw that in there. He was saying something very important, foundational to us as believers for us to get a hold of. Paul was adamant about this because Christ is the only way that we all have hope. And what I mean by that is when we think about the the, the religious leadership, the, the leaders of the temple system, A person's relationship to God and God's kingdom came down to your family heritage. You had to have the right last name and you had to separate from everything that wasn't linked to that heritage. But when we find our identity in the rejected stone and the one who didn't seem to look right or fit right, it doesn't matter where we come from or who we've been. It doesn't matter if we're wealthy or poor or young, or old, our place isn't determined by ethnicity or gender. It's a community where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all equal. We are all one by our faith in Christ. And Christ is the only common denominator that we can have like that. It all has to be focused on Jesus. As the church, it has to be focused on the work of our savior his revelation of god because if it starts to get focused on like how cool we can look i mean we've failed that test long ago (laughs) or 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 how relevant we can try to be or or on our political views in either direction not the it's not the brand or the denomination or the celebrity pastor or anything else that vies for our affection and our loyalty. And I'm telling you guys, the, the, the voices are loud and growing louder to detract us, to distract us from what it is that God called us to. And I'm not talking about the voices of secularism. I'm talking about the voices we're hearing even within the evangelical church. The metric we have to use is Jesus. Come back to that. Come back. Does this sound like Jesus when we're hearing it? Wherever it's coming from, whatever it is, does this sound like Jesus? Is this, is this in harmony with, with how he moved and lived, what he did? Rob, you seem worked up. I kind of am. I'm sorry. And, and, and so we'll calm it down here just a little bit, and I'll try to explain myself a little. But, but honestly, these, these, is, these are growing trends. 
I mean, you need to know these are the growing trends of our culture that right now for a, a person who has spent his life studying God's word and, and trying to serve people as pastor, um, based on the current research of our cultural trends right now, my word is almost meaningless on a cultural level, and that's including within the church. A, a person is far more likely to listen to, believe, and be persuaded by a political pundit than they are by a, a pastor or a person who represents the scriptures. I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience, it, it sounds like you're going to, Rob. Yeah, it, it sounds like a rant. It is. Uh, people have left this church. I mean, I'm talking about recently, over the past few years, I've talked to people on their exit out, asking them, what, what have I said about Jesus? What have I, how have I misrepresented him to you? What have I said about my Lord that, that messed you up here, that, that, that caused this division between us? And one person explicitly said it to me. It's not about that. It's just I don't, I'm not convinced you and I are aligned politically. And I can't be here. I can't listen to somebody that I, that I don't trust their politics. <laughs> no, oh, I, no, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm not saying it for that, you guys. I'm not saying it to, you know, maybe we can get, maybe we can whip up some support for Rob. But listen, but listen, there's something else at work in all of this. You know, we, my whole life I grew up with this thing, you know, the great falling away is coming. And we always were looking at the commies or whoever was out there, some outside force going to create the great falling away. What if? It came up right in our midst, waving an American flag. What if? And what if a statement like that were enough to push someone over the edge? I believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I believe in what he did on that cross and how that affects me and the entire world. I believe that that same Jesus died for my sins and your sins and that through his great love and grace, we are reconciled with God and have the promise of eternal life. I believe that Jesus will one day return to this earth and set all things right and make all things new. That's what I know. Everything else is expendable as far as I'm concerned. Every other view politically is expendable as far as I'm concerned. I don't align myself with any of those things. Because none of those things represent Jesus as I know him. And he's the most important thing to me. He's the most important thing to me. My notes are here crying out. <laughs> saying, oh, Rob, hast thou forsaken us? <laughs> and yes, <laughs> I have. So uh, I do have other points. What time is it? Do I have enough time? The, the kid's going to be okay? I'm looking at her because she's in charge of the kid's gate thing. That's why. <laughs> I don't want to. Okay, so, so, um, so our focus has to be Jesus. We made that point, I think, pretty dramatically. Um, so it's our responsibility to see to it that that calling to represent Christ is central in all we're, in all we're doing. But in, in this story, there's something else that, that comes up. When, when Jesus gives the warning, that, and he's talking about the leadership here, that he's going to take this away, that those who were representing God's rule in this world, he was going to take it away from them and give it to somebody else uh, with the implication behind that, that they were going to, you know, do it right or you know, do it better, I, I guess, or handle things differently. 
But the idea, the implicit idea behind it is that they would then rightly represent the kingdom of God. People who are humble enough and willing enough to submit and listen and and recognize God's authority and and live it rightly that way. And so there's a, a sort of an overall message in this story. And that is that we're going to rightly represent God's kingdom when we live out God's values in our life. And we look at the contrast of the way the temple leaders were expressing their faith with the way that Jesus lived and taught God's values. The temple leaders were all about the exclusivity of Israel, obsessive about keeping those that they deemed unworthy out. And they prioritized the mechanics of law keeping, making sure that the outward appearance was maintained, making sure that the temple maintained its respectability. They had this established status quo and they would not tolerate anyone questioning it. Contrast that with Jesus, who, on the other hand, kept throwing the doors wide open for all of the marginalized people to come flooding in. He prioritized humanizing people by acknowledging them and healing them from their oppressive circumstances. He laid down his life in order to give life to others. We've been the recipients of God's amazing grace. All of those things that he did, he did for us. He did for for me. He did for you. We've been the recipients of this love that has no boundary to it. What will we do with that? What will we do with this grace and this love that's been shown to us? We are the tenants of God's good vineyard. What will we do with all this fruit he's given us? What will we do with all this good wine? As those who recognize that God is king and presently at work in this world, will we be the kind of tenants who keep our eyes open for how we might distribute what the owner wants, how we might give it out freely to those he's called us to give it to, where we might minister and behave the way Jesus does to join him in his activity in this world. And listen, I'm not talking about trying to work up something. And, you know, for myself, I grew up in a system where, you know, the moment we start talking about bearing fruit, you start to, you know, either grab your wallet or get worried about something, you know, bear fruit. Okay, I'm going to bear some fruit. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about that. We're just looking for where God is already at work. Where do we see the fruits of his kingdom and how can we join in with that? At our job or in our school or at the store or at the gym or in the coffee house, in our neighborhoods, God's always been at work. God is always working. Will we join in sharing the healing fruit of his kingdom by by sharing a kind word, by encouraging or humanizing someone else, by praying for those who might be in need? I mean, we're not talking about, you know, big dramatic calls to salvation on a street corner somewhere. And I'm not denigrating that if God calls you to do that. That's fine. But that's not the automatic thing that we have to go to. We can be part of God's big kingdom project by doing small things, by just representing his love in small environments. Mother Teresa is quoted as saying, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. We don't have to get overwhelmed with this. When we talk about, you know, bearing the fruits of God's kingdom, we talk about living according to his values. Don't let this get overwhelming. Just you know, just look at how we can do this. The, you know the old adage, the kiss, K-I-S-S? Keep it simple, saint. Keep it simple, saint. Just do the simple things. So let's, we'll keep our focus on the cornerstone Jesus, 
Let's build our identities on his love. And then let's always be on the lookout for where we can share that love and demonstrate that grace to our fellow human beings. Let's determine not to be problem tenants. Let's determine to rightly represent this kingdom that belongs to the king who loved us unto death. Right on? All right. Everybody still love me? You don't even have to say that. You can hate me. You can. I don't care. I care. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that that um, your word that your word will shine through. And Lord, I, I will publicly stand here and confess. I spoke from my own understanding of things and expressed my opinion. And if I've overstepped my bounds or I've said things improperly or I've hurt someone uh, unintentionally, then Father, forgive me for that and, and let there be healing and, and grace here in all these things. But guide us as your people, Father. Lead us into that kind of focus that Paul had that singular focus of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Help us to find wholeness in an identity built on that and help us then to express that in the simplicity of the love and the grace that saved us. I pray that for us as a community, as a people. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.
blessing on each other before we bail out of here. I think they might be messed up. <laughs> not, not at Eastgate. That's not possible. Not today. Everything goes right for us. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. 
May he bring you home rejoicing once again to these doors. Go in peace, you children of God. There'll be people here to pray for you uh, if you need prayer for anything.